We have been in this season of Lent in the wilderness and then at home in Bethany and then in the detour to Samaria last week in the far country. The fifth Sunday in Lent traditionally brings us to heavier and more challenging terrain and so this morning we're in Gethsemane. Listen for God's word from the 22nd chapter of Luke. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into a time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength in his anguish He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping because of grief, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. While he was speaking, suddenly a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come from him, for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The word of the Lord. I want us to imagine for a moment that Jesus really meant what he said. There can be times when Jesus' words are inspiring metaphor, but this close to Good Friday and Easter, let us consider this morning that Jesus actually meant what he said in the garden. In Gethsemane, this has at least two implications. First, Jesus experienced the agony of grief. Second, After the ear of the slave of his opponents got cut off, when he said no more of this, Jesus expected us to listen and obey. But we resist taking Jesus at his word here because this leaves Jesus looking so vulnerable. Have you ever thought how much uh, of the people that Jesus addressed were those who were vulnerable? If anyone strikes you on one cheek, If anyone forces you to go a mile, if anyone takes you to court for your coat, maybe Jesus talked to victims of violence and abuse and ostracism because he knew what we managed to forget. There are more who are vulnerable than it appears at any given time or in any given room. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with such intensity. The text says his sweat became as drops of blood. This is Jesus at his most vulnerable. He is holding nothing back, fully expressive in his grief about what was about to happen to him. 
There's a great but horrifying scene in the movie 12 Years a Slave, a movie with many horrifying scenes, where Solomon, the free black man from Massachusetts who is abducted and sold into slavery, tells a mother whose children were taken from her that he's had all he can take of her mourning. She's been crying incessantly. It's become too much to bear. Solomon reminds her that they are all facing injustice and they have to find a way to rise up and get on. He thinks he's looking out for her as the master's wife won't bear her loud cries much longer. But this woman boldly refuses to be quiet. She even chastises Solomon for suggesting that she put aside her grief or veil it Slave or no, she is in mourning. They can take everything away from her, and indeed they have. She will not let them take away her grief. This raw grief and vulnerability from Jesus had to disturb his followers. You know, the disciples were often decried for falling asleep in the garden as if, you know, they didn't know the enormity of the moment. But what if far from being distracted, they're all too focused on vulnerable Jesus, and they just can't take it. Their bodies literally shut down in reaction. The disciples cannot conceive of the vibrant path of Jesus' ministry ending here, all of it, in arrest and death. They cannot imagine God's power is expressed in such a vulnerable way. Harvard psychologist Robert Coles once gave a talk about the importance of making decisions, not about what we should do with our life, but who we should be. In the middle of it, he told a story about a six-year-old girl named Ruby. She was one of three African-American children who were the first to be sent to previously white schools when the schools of New Orleans were integrated. Every day for six months, escorted by federal marshals, Ruby would walk past a screaming mob of people, yelling all kinds of names at her, spitting on her, telling her they were gonna kill her. During these months, Coles would ask the same question to Ruby and get the same answer. How are you doing, Ruby? Fine, she would say. Then one day, Ruby's teacher noticed something as Ruby was walking past the mob. It appeared that she was talking to the mob. Cole's questioner, Ruby, what were you saying to those people out there? I wasn't talking to them, Ruby said. I was praying for them. Cole's was astonished. He asked, why would you pray for those people? Because I should, Ruby said. Do you always pray for them, Coles asked. Oh yes, I pray for them every morning on the way into school, every afternoon on the way out, and I try to remember them in my evening prayers as well. And when he asked the six-year-old girl what she prayed for, she said, I pray God forgive them. They know not what they do. Vulnerability can be fearful and uncertain and threatening and disruptive. Jesus' vulnerability has God's power and grace. I think we need to consider that Jesus meant exactly what he said in the garden. How do we live with vulnerability, chosen or not, 
that does not lead us to either be passive in the face of injustice or to strike back if it mimics the world's use of power. In the garden, the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus was as vulnerable as he ever was. When the powers of the world came to arrest Jesus, a disciple struck the ear of the high priest slave and cut it off. The disciples' fear had consumed them. After all of Jesus' teaching, all the proclamation of God's hope, all the demonstrations of love, they were so afraid that God was not gonna get the last word and they felt the need to defend it. So they ignored the teaching and the hope and the love and they acted the way the world acts. And Jesus, vulnerable child of God, savior of hope, embodiment of love, said no more of this. And he healed the slave. Exasperated at his disciples, reverting to violence in their fear that God wouldn't get the last word, Jesus just stood there, vulnerable, in the deepest expression of God's love, said no more of this. You know, there's a difference between avoidance and vulnerability. We generally like to avoid uncomfortable circumstances, circumstances that can raise the uncomfortable truth that Jesus really meant what he said. Who needs that word today? A year ago, the world's largest family detention center opened in Dilly, Texas, to hold women and children from Central America. By midsummer, troubling stories started coming out of this camp. A child with a dislocated shoulder was told by doctors to tomor mas agua, drink more water. A mother with two broken fingers was told the same thing. Almost every one of the nearly 3,000 detainees are asylum seekers, fleeing gang violence, sexual abuse, or domestic violence. And yet they live in a prison, children growing up in jail. Every day when the mothers talk to their lawyers, the children are usually herded into one room and shown kids' movies, dubbed in Spanish, the most popular being, which will be no surprise to anyone who has a child of that age or a grandchild of that age, is the movie Frozen. The children detained there, like children everywhere, have taken to singing Frozen's iconic song, Let It Go. The Spanish language refrain to this beloved kid's song is Libra Soy, Libra Soy, which is literally translated, I am free all over the detention center. There are hundreds of little kids singing their favorite Disney song, Libra Soy, I Am Free, while their mothers face such anguish, discomfort, that that's the last thing they are. I will be the very first person to admit that issues like immigration are so incredibly complicated, but fundamental human dignity and care for those who are so vulnerable is not complicated in Jesus' name. No more of this. 
No more reporters telling us our economy is really doing okay for everyone when Walmarts around the country notice a rush of customers right after midnight on the first of the month, right after assistance checks were deposited, as parents urgently buy diapers and bread and milk so bare is their pantry, they can't even wait for daylight. No more of this. No more of a young woman who came into an emergency room last October and handed a note to the doctor that read, I have a tracker in me. The doctor rushed her to get an x-ray which showed this tiny tube-shaped contraption lodged under her skin. It's a device generally used to track dogs or cats but someone had put it in this woman shortly after she became a victim of human trafficking. No more of this. No more of young gay men and women being ridiculed and harassed until they are attacked and beaten or until they seek to take their life just to purchase some peace. No more of this. No more elder neglect, which is an epidemic in nursing homes near and far. No more of bullying in classrooms and on playgrounds, in every socioeconomic group, here and everywhere. Decade after decade after decade after decade, we are still struggling to say no more to our gaping racial divide in this country. When NBC News anchor John Chancellor retired in 1993, he was asked what was the most memorable story he covered. Chancellor didn't mention Watergate or Vietnam. Rather, he named the political conventions in the mid-1960s. He began to describe an experience from 1964. Black delegates were scarce on the convention floor that year, coming just in the wake of the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Chancellor recalled stumbling upon an older African-American man toward the back of the auditorium who was holding onto a pillar. The man was weeping and mumbling beneath tearful heaves, all my life, all my life. At first, the newsman thought the man had fallen but when he leaned in closer, Chancellor saw that the man's sport coat was riddled with cigarette burn holes. A delegate had decided this man would become his personal ashtray. And adding further degradation, other delegates joined in. The pain and anguish on that man's face is something I will go to my grave remembering. Chancellor said, 1964, 2016, and still we hear the cries, all my life, all my life. Wherever in the Gospels there was vulnerability, there was Jesus. Jesus was vulnerable, speaking with frustration and grief and deep love, no more of this. Before any of these are political entanglements or social issues, they are personal expressions of pain. They are communal cries of vulnerability. 
It's no wonder that in the last week of his life, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's no wonder on the night before he was killed, Jesus prayed with sweat that became like drops of blood. In March 1990, England played Scotland in Edinburgh for the European Rugby Championship. The most remarkable event of that day happened before the match. The English players entered to a largely hostile reception, as you'd imagine, but the Scots captain, David Soule, did something different. He led his team out onto the field with a stately walking pace. It said, there is nothing you can throw at us that we can't deal with. We're gonna walk right towards you and we will not be overcome. Sam Wells has written, get into David Soul's mind for a moment. This is the defining moment of my life. What happens today will be my identity, my legacy, my single truth, and I am walking slowly toward it. I am entering the eye of the storm. Perhaps you are facing a storm today. Maybe today finds you hanging by a thread trying to figure out what is the arc and tilt of your life. Or perhaps you're a follower of Jesus that night in the garden with everything on the line and so afraid that God will not get the last word. Your instinct, my instinct in times like that is to dodge, escape, deny, strike back, find a way out, run away. Could it be that Jesus is calling you like Jesus in that garden not to deny or flee or strike back, but to walk straight into the eye of the storm? Again, Sam Wells, let's take an inventory of what walking toward the storm would mean. It's going to mean going into your bottomless fear and naming it and facing the worst thing that could happen and then trusting that God will meet you so that you will go through and beyond your fear and out the other side. That's courage, trembling courage. It would mean that you are facing what you thought God had in store for you, a wonderful template, and instead focusing on this thing that you are walking toward as the only thing God wants you to concentrate on and believing that God will work out all the rest. That's trust, quavering trust. It would mean entering into the convulsing grief and loss and fear of separation, of having no meaning in your life except for that which God makes for you and believing that's all that counts. That's faith, shuddering faith. It would mean accepting the prospect of pain of uncertain duration, unpredictable depth, and relentlessly intensity with no protection Accept God's everlasting arms and believing those arms will never, ever let you go. That's hope, quaking hope. That's what it means to walk into the eye of the storm. Courage, trust, faith, hope. Jesus' vulnerability in the garden, his bold injunction, no more, of the usual ways of coping with a violent and painful world, 
Courage, trust, faith, hope. This is not the way our culture teaches us to address storms. The disciples that night in the garden show the way of the world, trying to manage the storm so as to make courage, trust, faith, and hope unnecessary. The Christian faith is that God in Christ walked toward the eye of the storm. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not deny, avoid, escape, or lash back. In his vulnerability, he loved us beyond all measure and called us to stop every single thing that leads us away from God's love. That's why we walk toward the storm in trust and faith and hope. Because Jesus actually meant what he said. What Jesus knew was that God is always walking toward the storm too, just from the other side. There's no need to fear that God will get the last word. So we walk into the eye of the storm in utter vulnerability for one reason only, to meet God. 